Well, howdy. My name is Kevin Bear. I'm the college pastor here at Grace Southwood, and uh, I got a phone call later on uh, early this week that, uh, that Blake was, was not feeling well, and so he asked me to jump in. Uh, Trey, I had already asked to go over to the college service and fill in for me. I was planning on having a week off, and I was like, the sovereign hand of the Father has made me available uh, this week. <laughs> And, uh, and so I'm excited to be with you here this morning. Uh, so we're going to be jumping out of our uh, Pentateuch study. Um, I hope you're going to be okay with that. But I think with, with what God has really been laying on my heart, um, I think it'll be really helpful for us this morning. Um, so we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read uh, verses 11 through 18. I'm going to pray for us one more time, and then we will jump in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. It says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we might be people that build healthy communities, that we might be people that build the greatest community, and that is the kingdom of God, and so that we would be people that love one another well, that encourage one another well, that speak life into one another. Jesus, you told your disciples that the world will know that we are yours by one simple thing, the way we love one another. So Lord, I pray that as we study this passage in Thessalonians, that we might grow to be more and more like you in a community that truly honors you. So in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I had an experience that changed my life several years ago at Chick-fil-A. And no, it was not the chicken sandwich. Uh, and you're like, well, what, what was it, Kevin? Uh, well, at the time, I had uh, four young, young children. I still have four young children, but they were even younger. And my youngest daughter, Juliet, was in one of those carriers. And my other three kids uh, were, they were probably ages six down to about three, something in that range. And so I'm walking into Chick-fil-A because my family had reached the breaking point. Parents, you understand this moment. Uh, my, my wife was in Katy, and I was driving from Katy back to College Station, and so it was just me with the four children, and this is not a safe place to be as a dad with a credit card and screaming children. And so I pulled off at the first Chick-fil-A that I saw, and I was like, this will satisfy all of my greatest needs, hopefully, right? But this Chick-fil-A was kind of difficult to get into uh, because everyone's there. You know, I mean, the, the car line is ridiculous, so I, I pull in, and I, I start grabbing my kids out, and I've got to forage my way across this parking lot, dodging hungry people as they're in this long line, and finally flustered. My kids are a mess. I get into Chick-fil-A with the children, and I'm like, okay, now I've got to stand in this line. And my children are, are totally understanding at this moment. They're just like, Father, what would be best for you? 
No, like they're hungry and agitated. Can we go play? And like, they're just a mess. And I'm, I'm sitting there going like, what am I going to do? And the, there's a Chick-fil-A worker that sees my, me in my despair, walks over to me and goes, sir, why don't you just have a seat? And I'm like, yeah, but I need to get food. And she goes, I will take your order from the booth. I'm like, you can do such a thing? <laughs> And she says, go sit down. And I go and sit down. And, uh, and the kid's like, can we go play in the playground? I'm like, yes. And so they go. And she comes over. She takes my order. I sit there. And I'm like, do I need to go pick it up? She's like, no, no. I will bring it to you. <laughs> and I'm like, there is a God in heaven. <laughs> and he lives at Chick-fil-A. And, uh, and the, the reason I tell you that moment is because there's something that Chick-fil-A has tapped into that honestly all businesses want to tap into. <laughs> and it's this, how do we create cultures where people feel cared for, supported, loved, and helped? How do we do this? How do we actually build communities that care for one another? How do we build healthy lives? In fact, many business people have been speaking into this. One of them is a guy named uh, Patrick Lencioni, or sorry, Daniel Coyle, and he says... I'm going to go forward one more. One was Patrick Lencioni, and he says this. In his book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, he says, not finance, not strategy, not technology. It's teamwork that remains the ultimate competitive advantage, both because it is so powerful and so rare. He says, what's going to make the dream work? Teamwork. That's what he says. How are we going to be successful? The team seeing one another's needs and moving in to help one another. Businesses are studying this. There's a book uh, called The Culture Cold by a guy named Daniel Coyle, and he writes this. I think this is hilarious. Give a good idea to a mediocre team, and they'll find a way to screw it up. Give a mediocre idea to a good team, and they'll find a way to make it better. The goal needs to be to get the team right, get them moving in the right direction, and get them to see where they're making mistakes and where they are succeeding. He says, if you want a successful group, what you have to do is build a healthy team, build a healthy culture, build a healthy community. And that's crucial. How is it that you can build a healthy team, a healthy organization? How can we actually build a greater community? Businesses are asking this question. Is it that we give them Sundays off? Is it that we tell them to say my pleasure? Like what is it that builds a healthy, healthy community? And the truth is this, we need this in our life because you want to build not merely a healthy business if you're in a business, but you want to build a healthy family life. Hopefully, you want to build a healthy neighborhood life in your, if you're part of a neighborhood organization. You want to build a healthy little league team. Anyone coaching? You're like, like oh, yeah, that would be nice. Um, you want to have healthy classrooms. We want to have healthy churches. We want to have healthy small groups. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we build healthy, life-giving groups? I'll tell you this. The most important investments you can make are actually relational investments. The most important investments you can make are actually relational investments. It's because it's the relationships within that team, within that organization, within that family that are crucial if you actually want to have a healthy group. And if we're honest, it's the relational investments that are the most difficult to manage. It's bad relationships that cause businesses to split. 
It's bad relationships that cause bands to split. The Eagles, the Beatles, in the 90s or early 2000s, Oasis, right? So like all of these bands, these people couldn't get along and so they split. And we've watched teams split, NBA teams split. Back in the 2000s, it was Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal, two incredibly talented players that, that couldn't figure out how to play together. More recently, it was on the Golden State Warriors. One of the greatest NBA teams ever assembled, incredible athletes. One of those athletes was a, a guy named Kevin Durant, an incredible scorer. And he has since less, left the team, right? And he, tra- he transitioned to a different team, the New York um, Nets. And, and they, in several interviews, he's kind of it's coming out what was going on in that team. He says this in one interview. I came in there wanting to be part of a group, wanting to be part of a family, and definitely felt accepted. But as time went on, I started to realize that I'm just different from the rest of the guys. It's not a bad thing. Just my circumstances and how I came into the league. And on top of all of that, the media always looked at me like it was KD and the Warriors. So it's, it's like nobody could give full acceptance of me here. It's fascinating. What causes communities to grow and thrive is when people can come together and build healthy teams and organizations. What causes them to split is when relationships can't be mended. Let me tell you this. The big premise of the message this morning is one simple statement. And it's this. That every Christian carries the responsibility to build the community. Every Christian carries within us the responsibility to build up the community. And Paul is writing to um, the church in Thessalonica, in this ancient city, and he's saying this. They're, they're really a new organization. We're not sure if there's elders or leadership fully established in the church or not. But Paul is going to say this. Things are going well there. Things are, things are very positive, but I want you to actually continue to to care for one another, to help one another. I want you to build a healthy community. And there's something that Paul is going to point to. He says, I'm going to tell you it's the responsibility of every person here to play a part in building a healthy community. And the same is true here. It's the responsibility of every one of you to play your part to build a healthy community. And when you go home to Thanksgiving, it is your responsibility to play your part to build a healthy community. We're going to talk more about that later on. But I'll simply say this. Your words and your actions can create a powerfully attractive environment. Your words and your actions can create a powerfully attractive environment. So how are you using them? How are you using your words and your actions? Well, Paul in this section is going to give us some some wisdom into how to both use our words and our actions to build a healthy environment, to build a healthy community. And the first thing he's going to say in verse 11 is this. There's a perspective that we need to have, that building people is the goal. Building healthy relationships is the goal. And he says this in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you have been doing. Encourage one another. And build one another up just as you have been doing. The first word that he uses there is is to encourage. 
And that word encourage basically means this, to call out by name. It's the word in Greek, parakaleo, means to come alongside and to call up. That means to literally call them by name, to look at their name and say, you are doing a good job. You need to be strengthened, encouraged, to continue to to be built up. And the second word he uses is, is literally to build up, to edify, to build like a building. And he says, I want you to do this. I want you to use your words to bring encouragement and to bring strengthening, to build other people up. And it's your responsibility to use your words in the right way. Proverbs 18.21 says it this way. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. What does that mean? It means one positive comment can send you soaring. And one negative comment can send you sinking. One positive comment can send you soaring. So think about it when you were in college. You're walking uh, through uh, the MSC. And some people come to you and they're like, howdy, howdy. And then a cute girl goes, howdy. And you're like, oh, howdy. <laughs> and she's like, I like your shirt. And you're like, I'm never going to change this shirt ever again. Right? That, that one positive comment will send you soaring. But one misplaced word can send you sinking. Some of us carry the wounds of some misplaced side comment that meant nothing to the person but wounded us deeply. And so what Proverbs is saying, what Paul is saying is, look, death and life are in the power of the tongue. We actually can shape someone's destiny, how they feel about themselves by the words that we speak. And so I want you to build one another up, encourage and build one another up. Choose your words carefully. And then the rest of the section, he's going to talk about four relationships that we need to really think well about in how we use our words. There's relationships with people above us, leaders. There's relationships with people beside us. It's, it's people that are on the same level. There's a moments of conflict that we've got to choose our words carefully in, and there's something inside of us. So the four relationships are both above us, beside us, when people are against us, And when there's something that needs to change on the inside of us. So the first group that he lists are the leaders. How do I respond to the people that are above me? And there's one question I want to give you to ask. And it's this, how can I support? When you're in a position where someone is above you, the question we need to ask is this, how can I support them? And their leadership. Paul says it this way. We ask you brothers. To respect those who labor among you. And are over you in the Lord. And admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love. Because of their work. And be at peace among yourselves. What's interesting in this section. Is that Paul doesn't list out. Elders or pastors in particular. And there's probably a reason for that. It's a young church. And they probably haven't officially uh, solidified pastoral leadership or elder leadership within their church. And so they're, they're saying, what I want you to do is simply look around and to see those people that are doing several things. They labor and they teach. The people that are laboring, that are working hard among you and that are admonishing, that are teaching you, I want you to do something. I want you to recognize their contribution. I want you to recognize their work. 
I want you to see those people that are working hard to make everything work. And I want you to to do something with them. And the first thing I would say that we need to do is recognize the contribution of the leaders around us. And at Grace, right here, there are tons of things that have to come together for us to have this moment. We have elders that are unpaid, that serve and love and care for us. It is absolutely amazing the number of hours these men that are elders put in. We have deacons. They set up cones, they set up chairs, they they serve communion, they do all sorts of things here to make this thing work. There's a band. Are they good? Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, they deserve a hand. They help us to sing songs to the Lord. They help, they study, they prep, they, they prepare so well. I'm so thankful for them. There's a sound team back there. You wouldn't hear me if it wasn't for them, right? Like, there's a sound team back there. There's, and there's people that we've hidden, like in some deep recesses over there. There's called the children's ministry. <laughs> yes! And they have enabled us to be able to have a moment, to learn, to worship, and that know that our kids are cared for well. And oftentimes, it becomes very difficult to recognize the contributions of all of these people. There's home group leaders, there's small group leaders, there's all sorts of people working together to make this happen. The first thing Paul says, look, I want you to recognize the contribution of those people that are working hard for you. Recognize it. He says, I want you to do a second piece. I want you to honor their contribution. I want you to honor them. And he uses a very interesting word in the Greek. It's, it's super honor. In fact, it's three words stacked together that means like super, super honor these people. Meaning hold them in highest regard. That means when you see them, you super, super, super honor them. You hold them in highest esteem. You hold them in highest regard. And here's what's challenging with this. We live in a culture that is better and likes to point out problems more than celebrate contributions. We live in a culture where it's a lot easier to, to scrutinize and belittle leaders. It's, very, it's, un, it's not normal to build up and honor leaders. I just want you to take a moment to think about different authorities that exist in your life. Whether they're parents, or bosses, or professors, or teachers, or community leaders, or coaches. Just think about different people that are in authority in in your life. And think about your position. You're a citizen. You're an employee. You're part of a student organization. You're part of a neighborhood. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a niece, a nephew. You're a grandson or a granddaughter. We all have moments where we are under authority. And I want you to think about your word count. I'll ask you two questions. How many positive, encouraging, building words have I placed into those relationships? And how many negative words have I put into those relationships? How many positive, encouraging, building words have I, have I spoken as a citizen to the people that are leading this community, this city, as an employee to my boss, as a student to my professors, as an organizational member to the people leading my neighborhood meetings? Like, have I on my Facebook gone out of my way to say thank you, people of Castlegate, 
for dealing with my headaches. Thank you, people of Pebble Creek, for dealing with my challenges. Have you actually spoken words of life into those community organizations, or have we, have we not? As a son or a daughter, have you spoken positive words to your parents? As a niece or a nephew, have you spoken positive words to your aunts and uncles that have, that have been over you as a, as a granddaughter, as a grandson? Have you spoken positive words to build up those people that have gone before you? And let me say this. It doesn't mean that we only sing praises. We do need to think critically and point out where things need to be improved. I'm not saying we only sing praises. I'm just saying what gets the greater weight of our words. I'm going to brag on my daughter for a moment because she did this amazingly for me. My daughter's nine years old. And uh, her name's Peyton. She's great. And it was just earlier this week. We're driving in the car, and she asked me this question. Daddy, how come you're so patient with us? And I was like, I've deceived my child, right? I, that's, <laughs> that's literally what I thought. And, and I, was, I was like... I was like, baby, um, there are... And immediately I thought of all the moments I was impatient with her or her siblings. I immediately thought about all of them. And I'm like, I'm like sweetie, what are, you even, what, what are you even saying? She's like, she's like you've been so patient with, with, with us. And like, you, you care for us. And, and, and you, you know, when we fight and anger, you're, like, you're very patient. And I, I told her, I said, I said, honestly, it's because people have been very patient with me. I know that I grow and thrive when my leaders are very patient with me and create an environment where I can, I can make mistakes and I can grow. And I'm trying to create the same environment for you. I spoke it at nine-year-old language, but I said I'm trying. And you know what that little statement did for me? It made me want to be a better daddy. It made me want to be more patient. She could have pointed out the problem. Hey, Daddy, I've got four or five instances of your impatience. I just want to bring for your recognition. But she didn't. She says, you've been so patient with us. And that little positive statement literally made me want to be a better daddy, to be more patient. What's your word count? Proverbs 16.24 says this, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. Gracious words, encouraging words, helpful words. We have a responsibility to the people above us. How am I supporting? Paul goes on, we also have a responsibility to the people beside us. And the question in those relationships is this, how can I help? Paul says it this way. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He turns from a responsibility to how we respond to the people above us, but he says, we have a responsibility, brothers, to the people beside us. I want you to see this community that our responsibility is to help those alongside of us, to encourage those. And he gives us four things to do with the people alongside of us. The first thing he says is to warn the people alongside of us. He says, admonish them. And what that word means in Greek is it's really interesting. It means to impart understanding, to set right, to have a corrective influence on someone, 
to lay out the heart of someone or to teach. It's really helpful. The Greek word has a lot of nuance to it. And I think that's very, very helpful. It's, it's both understanding. It's, it's setting right. It's, it's corrective influence. It's, it's laying out the heart of an issue. It's, it's not just, you are wrong, shape up. It's coming alongside and saying, hey, I, I want to explain this situation a little more fully. I want to explain how you're actually hurting the community by choosing to continue to do this. See, a healthy group self-corrects. A healthy group self-corrects. They don't just wait for the person in charge to, to bring in change. They actually speak life to one another. When I was in high school, we experienced this as part of our little cross-country team. There was moments um, in cross-country where you would have no coach in sight. They would say, go run forever out that direction, and we'll see you when you're done. You know, like that's, that's kind of how it went. But we knew as members of the cross-country team that we needed each person to give their best if we were going to win. And so there was moments when you're out in the middle of nowhere where it's so easy to just walk. And there's a deep desire to walk. If you've ever run for like eight miles, you're like, I just, I need to, I need to walk. I need to walk, you know? And there was moments where you just, you just wanted to walk and give up. And, and I remember as, as, as part of the group, what would happen is the guys that were leading at moments, they would see people starting to walk. And there's two responses you could give. One was to just yell at them. You're an idiot. You know, like that. (laughs) But more often than not, here's what happened. The group, as a team, would come back around. They would go to those people and say, hey, we need you to give your best. So walk a little bit, but we're going to run with you through the rest of this run. See, the best groups do that. They come alongside and they self-correct. They... They admonish, they say, we need your contributions. And this isn't helping us. So let's go forward. So not only do you warn, but you comfort the discouraged. See, there's, all mo- there's always moments in the community where people are discouraged. There's moments when you're raising kids that we can get discouraged. There's moments when you're continuing in school when you can get discouraged in your studies. There's moments in your marriage when you can get discouraged. There's challenges in life that come, whether it's sickness or illness or cancer, all sorts of issues that we all face. And a healthy community comes alongside and realizes, okay, you're in a tough spot. And so we're going to move in and we're going to comfort. We're going to speak words of life to you in the midst of your discouragement. The third thing a community does is it helps the weak. And this word weak could mean morally weak, or spiritually weak. It means this. There's moments when, when there's people struggling alongside of us. And we don't look at them and say, get your act together. We come alongside them and say, how can we support? How can we help? How can we encourage you to continue on when you're feeling spiritually or morally weak? Accountability groups are crucial for this. It's one of the things that we do within our, our small group communities. It's why you should be in one. It's so that there's men and women beside you that can help you when you're feeling weak. Sunday morning moments are amazing and encouraging, but for most of us, it's not enough. We need those other deeper relationships to continue to help us. He says, fourthly, and be patient with all. That means, ex- <laughs> the Greek word literally means to be long-suffering. To be long-suffering means this. You suffer a long time 
for the growth of people. And it will hurt you. And it will slow you down. Really, it's the video game I played growing up in school called Oregon Trail. (laughs) You're laughing because you played the game. (laughs) Oregon Trail is a silly computer game. And and, uh, the goal is to get from the east all the way to Oregon. And inevitably, along the journey, something goes wrong. They're like, Sally got bit by a snake. And you're like, I don't care about Sally. I don't need Sally. They're like, Mama got the fever. And you're like, sorry, Mom. You know, you just, there, there's all of these issues that arise along the journey. And, and if you keep on, like, shedding uh, dead weight, you know, like, what ends up happening is that you are eventually going to get hurt. And you're not going to recover because there's no one to help you. And so that's the way I used to play Oregon Trail. I'm going to get there as quick as I can, and I'm going to shed the dead weight and like move on, right? And I realized I would never win the game if it's only about me and where I can get. If you want to win the game, it means that you've got to go for a little bit, stop, and Sally's got to recover from her snake bite. So like, give Sally some water. You know, you just kind of sit there and, and let people recover. And then you get up and you go a little bit further, and, and you're going to sit there and help mama to go, mama, I'm so sorry. You know, and you just kind of move on. (laughs) And as you care for the community, it's slower, but you get further. It's slower, but you get further. I was speaking with some college students the other day that I I disciple, and, and, um, and they were asking a very honest question. I thought I was so thankful for the question. It was this. What is the purpose of the church? And they said, why can't I just go to Breakaway or just be involved in Impact or just be involved in missions or these other organizations? And I said, you should be in all of those. I love the ministry of Breakaway. I'm so thankful for TA and his faithfulness and the whole, everything that they do. It's absolutely amazing. I love Impact. They're an amazing leadership organization that help people grow and flourish and get connected in deep community. You should do all of those things. But they're like, okay, so, but what's the purpose of the church? I said, if I could use an analogy, it would be the difference between, in the military, special forces and army bases. Special forces are trained for specific missions to do specific things. So you train up a group of guys, and they're going to go break new territory for some particular mission. But their goal is to break new ground, not to hold ground. The church is more like an army base. An army base is... is is fuller in what it has. It, it, it provides for families. It provides for the injured. It provides training. It, 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 surprise, it supplies um, all sorts of other things to help people along. And so the church is more like an army base than a special force. Missions organizations, those specific specialized groups, we need them. We need them to go into places that we all can't go. But we need the church Because we come alongside and we help the hurting, we support, we build what those specified ministries can't do. We need them all. We need the overall community to help one another. And the reason I say that is because many of us are merely passing through this community. We're not investing in the community. We haven't taken the responsibility to care for the person beside us. We haven't taken the responsibility to really nurture the people here. But we need you. 
We need you to help create a comfortable, worshipful environment. We need you to give your best so that we can be at our best. We need you to do the simple things of saying, when someone new comes in, you say, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Is this your first time at Southwood? I'm glad you're here. That's something that I can do, but I can't do enough. But you can. It means you invite people to your home group or your small group. It means you volunteer in our children's ministries, even though it will benefit you in no way, but it'll help another family. It means we invest in the community because when we all invest, we all win. But there's a reality that happens when we invest. And it's this. You're going to have conflict. And so Paul is a realist in this moment. He says what's going to happen is we invest in one another, we care for one another, we actually live life together, is that it's going to get gritty. And what will happen inevitably is that someone will rub you the wrong way. And it says it, says it this way. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I love that statement because he's assuming something here. He's assuming misunderstanding and hurt feelings. He says, see that no one repays evil for evil. So someone will do something wrong to you. Welcome to church. If you haven't been disappointed yet, just wait around long enough. And I will disappoint you, Blake will disappoint you, Guff will disappoint you, our children's ministry will disappoint you. Someone's going to disappoint you at some point. We never claim to be perfect. And if we, if we assume that we're never going to be disappointed, there's one of two problems. Either we've never really invested in the community, so we always stay at the periphery, or we actually have unrealistic expectations. There's a website by um, Eric Geiger. He's a, um, a, a leadership um, kind of training guy. And he has an amazing way of describing this. He says, what people need are thick skin and tender hearts. He says, here's what happens. There's kind of four options that you can have. The first one is this. You can have a thin skin and a tough heart. And what that means is that you're um, thick skin and a a tough heart. And that means you're hard-headed. That means that you don't feel anything and you just bulldoze your way. You're thick-skinned and a hard heart. You're a bulldozer. You're hard-headed. That doesn't help the community. The other option is that you have a thin skin and a tough heart. That means you're jaded. That means you expect something to go wrong, and you're just waiting for someone to disappoint you. That's that's what it means. That means you're jaded. The church is bad. Everyone's bad. This community's bad. Even Chick-fil-A's bad. You know, you're just jaded about everything. Third option is that you can have, a th- have thin skin and a tender heart. And that means you're always wounded. That if anyone says the wrong thing or doesn't do the right thing, you, you, really, you take it deeply personal because you, things hit you deeply all the time. Or you could have thick skin and a tender heart. And that means that you're resilient and compassionate. That means when someone says the wrong thing, you don't let it sink deep. You're like, maybe they're having a bad day. You actually assume the best, and you can bounce back. He says, don't repay evil for evil, but do a second piece. Seek the good. Do you ask the question in every situation, what is the highest good? What is the good of this situation. What good does God actually want? 
Because you may have absolutely the right decision, but the complete wrong process to get there. You may be right in your marriage when you say, we can't spend money on that. You may be right in your marriage when, it says, when you say, the kids need this. You may be right in thanksgiving this next week when you go, here's what happens with the turkey, here's what happens with the dressing, here's where everyone's going to come, here's who's going to pray, and here's how to make it absolutely perfect. And let me tell you what, your plan may be right. You may be absolutely right and absolutely wrong at the same time. Because yelling to get compliance does not get loving commitment. You can get people to move, but you can't get their heart. Winning may get your way, but it will not change the heart. You may be right and all alone. You can manipulate with emotions by crying or complaining or playing the victim. And you may get people to move. But it does not mean people feel that the best decision was made. In our conflicts, are we assuming that we're going to be rubbed the wrong way? And then are we seeking the highest good? Are we just seeking to manipulate the situation to get what we want? As we walk into conflicts, you will be disappointed in your relationships. There's relationships above you where you're going to have conflict with those leaders. There's relationships beside you with coworkers or spouses or roommates where you're going to experience conflict. The question I would encourage you to ask is this. What's the highest good? What is the highest good It may not be the decision. It may be the relationship. And you may eventually get to the right decision if you can build meaningful relationships. That actually might be the highest good. So with people above us, is how I can support. With people beside us, how can I help? With people are against us, it's what good can I bring? And if you've been tracking along with this, you would say this to me. Kevin, that all looks really hard. And that's why Paul turns the telescope to a microscope. Not merely how do we look out there, but how do we look in here? Because there's something that has to change inside of us if we're going to respond to the community this way. So the question for this one is this, what's needed in me? How do I need to change if I'm going to create this type of community? Paul says it this way, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So many people ask the question, I just want to know God's will for my life. I want to know God's will. Here it is. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. He says, firstly, rejoice. 
And let me tell you what, this is hard. I came across this quote, which I thought was amazing. The optimist proclaims that we live in the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist fears this is true. <laughs> Let that sink for a moment. The optimist believes, hey, there's lots of things to rejoice in. Like, I can think of so many things. The pessimist goes, this may be as good as it gets, right? Like, and there's something within us that causes that tension. I can't think of a good thing. And Paul tells us in Philippians, okay, let me help you, help you dissect that a little bit. Finally, brothers... Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about that. Whatever's honorable, whatever's true, whatever's anything pure, commendable, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on that. That will give you something to rejoice in. And so let me just get really, really practical. When you go home to Thanksgiving, some of you are like, this is the most beautiful, prime, easy time of life. Others of you say, this is the most awkward, chaotic, weird part of life. I reached my breaking point one Thanksgiving. Like, I understand, right? Can you walk into that moment and say, I can rejoice. I can think of something to set my mind on. I can think of anything pure. Well, the turkey got burned beyond recognition. Well, at least it didn't burn us. The pies are the soggiest mess in the world. The better to use a spoon with. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Is there, is there anything positive you can mine out of that situation? And I want to be honest with you. It is hard to rejoice always. It is difficult. And that's why I think Paul gives us the next instru- instruction. Pray without ceasing. And that may be the best advice I can give you as going home. If you're actually trying to think of things to rejoice in, you're going to have to pray like, God, I do not see the good. You've got to help me. As a coworker, it may be that I have to work with this person. I cannot rejoice in anything this individual does. And so that is a great reason to pray. God, when I walk in with my parents and some of my extended family over the holidays, it's going to be a little bit challenging, and I don't know what it's going to be like. I think I just want to avoid everything. Maybe there's a football game on and like headphones that will drown out all of their comments. And and in that moment, I would encourage you to pray. What do I actually need to be in this environment to be helpful? God, what do I need to do? I pray without ceasing when I actually see my need. I pray because I don't know how to respond in this situation. I pray because I don't know how to rejoice. I pray because I don't know how to encourage. Just Lewis says it this way. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, but it changes me. Oh, that's powerful. The reason C.S. Lewis says I pray is because I see my desperate need. I cannot live the life God is calling me to live. So I pray and I pray and I pray. And God doesn't change, 
but I see it changing me. And lastly, he says, in everything, give thanks. In every circumstance, he says, I want you to have a thankful heart. See, gratitude is incredibly helpful. You can go, and I encourage you, go do some studies on the effects of gratitude. It's been shown to improve physical health, to improve self-esteem, to open the doors to better relationships. Gratitude is incredibly helpful in life. And it is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And he gives a crucial caveat there. In Christ Jesus. See, the truth is this. I can't manufacture these right responses in all these situations. In fact, there's so much within me that resists the leaders above me, the people beside me, the, the conflict that comes with me. And, and there's so much conflict that, that, that happens that I'm, I don't want to respond the right way. But he says, Paul says, look, you can do this in him. He changes your heart from the inside out. If you put your faith wholly and solely in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, let me tell you what happens. He begins working these new desires in you and working these new responses in you. Galatians says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's one fruit with all of those slices that can be yours in Christ. So we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, change me. And Jesus, help me be the one that speaks life into this community. And if you actually do this, you'll be amazed at the effect. We actually participated in this exercise earlier this week. We had a staff meeting and Guth led it. And we talked about conflict resolution. Happy topic. And leaders from all different um, departments across all of our campuses met together and we started talking about conflict, a resolution of what to do to manage conflict better. At the end of our time together, he says, okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak thankfulness to people in other departments for their contribution. And there is a tangible change in the room when everyone said, I need to lead with thankfulness and think about the contributions of these others. There is a tangible change, and this is the church. Of course we should do this. Let me give you a challenge. What if in Thanksgiving this year, you actually said, we are going to say what we're thankful for in one another. Not thankful for the gifts that God has given us, although there's plenty to be thankful for. But what if you took it personally? Maybe you can't change the moment at the dinner, but maybe it's, I'm going to intentionally go to each person this Thanksgiving and say, Mom, I'm so thankful that you've done this. Sister, I'm so thankful that you're this way. Son, I'm so thankful that you are this. What if we actually modeled that? We led with thankfulness. And if we don't know what to pray, we don't know what to say, God says, that's where I'm going to come in and help you. Come to me, and I'll show you how to live this life.
people change the world. And it's the community that the world longs to see. The world will know we're his by the way we love one another. We pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, I pray that we could be the people you desire us to be. People that look to lean into these relationships and encourage and to speak life and to speak love. That we would ask the questions, how can I support? How can I help? What's the highest good? What change is needed in me? And by your grace, you would make us more into the men and women that build healthy communities by the power of your spirit. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week.